so great to be back with you guys. Hey, we're going to continue our series called God of All Grace. God of All Grace. And this series today, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter. We're just going to take the next few verses here. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 12. And so I want to start today with a question. And the question that I have for us today is, how do we know when God is speaking or has spoken? How do we know when God is speaking or has spoken? And how do we know when we've heard from the Lord and can trust that direction? Now, what we're going to be looking at today actually um, is some pretty, pretty solid foundational theological stuff. But then it has some really great applications, some takeaways for us, and I want to go over that. So last week we talked about a proven faith, and a proven faith is tried, it's tested, it's documented. And so a proven faith is tried by fire, and he says, which is of greater value than gold. And then the week before that, we talked about having a living, living hope. You and I have been born again into a hope that will not quit, a hope that will not die. It's a living hope. And today we're talking about the privilege, the privilege of grace. First Peter uh, 1, 9 through 12, I want to read it to you. It says, he says, because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls, Concerning this salvation, critical phrase there, concerning this salvation that we've been talking about and that we are going to talk about, the prophets, Old Testament prophets, who prophesied about the grace that would come to you, searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, and these things have now been announced to you through the, those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Wow. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. Man, great stuff. So Peter, verses 3 through 5, he's told us about a future salvation. So he's hit all tenses here right? He's hit all tenses. He's told us about a future salvation that we can anticipate by resurrection. And our trials in verses 6 through 9, he's told us that our trials really prepare us and they gird us up and they strengthen us, strengthen our foundation in this present salvation that we are living out. But now he's going back to the past and he's going to say, hey, listen, you have a rich heritage. You have a rich heritage of salvation. But what do we mean when we say salvation? What are we talking about? We are saved from something and we are saved to something. So we have to understand that we are saved. When we talk about being saved, we must talk about what we are saved from. And if we properly understand what it is that we're being saved from, we will have the appropriate, the appropriate urgency to be driven into the arms of grace, the arms of Jesus, because we understand just how grave of a situation we're in. Uh, when my boy Hayden, my second son, second oldest son was little, uh, he got into everything. As a matter of fact, our other kids have never had any surgeries at all. And Hayden, I think to date, has had like five surgeries. I can't, I, we forgot, count, we stopped counting. He has had a lot of surgeries. And when he was a little boy, uh, the second surgery that he, that he had was due to getting into something he shouldn't have gotten into. And I used to keep all of my X-Acto knives. Anybody, any of you men, you guys, you have like those, uh, those really sharp box cutter knives. And I used to have a couple of those. 
And, uh, and some of you ladies, Kali, I see, collects them as well. And then I had just a couple of the small ones, the little exacto knives, the little plastic ones. And he was fascinated with knives. He, was, he had to have a knife. And I told him, you're too little, you can't have a knife. And he's still, to this day, he's 17 years old, he hides knives like under his bed. Like, he just loves knives. And so um, he knew where I kept them. He was in the garage with me one day, apparently, and he watched me. I would put them on the top shelf, the very top shelf uh, that I had there in the garage. And one day I'm sitting, working on my computer, like working on something for church or the weekend or class or something. And I'm sitting on the couch and I can see him in the corner of my eye and he's slashing around. He's going, and then I hear Tyler. Tyler gets up from the other side of the room and says, oh no, daddy, he has a knife. And I, my body just felt like it was in slow motion. I was like, no, you know, and before I could get to Hayden, Tyler had already gotten to him and pulled the knife out of his hand and said, give me that. And when he did that, he cut Hayden from here to here and cut a tendon in his hand. And not to be gross, I don't mean to make you throw up or pass out, but the blood just started, was everywhere. It just looked like we had, it was a murder scene, a crime scene in our entryway or in our house. And I threw the computer down and I jumped up and I picked him up and he's screaming bloody murder. And I picked him up and Carrie comes down and we wrap up his hand. We immediately throw his little buns into the car and drive as fast as we can to the ER. He ends up getting surgery on his hand to repair the tendon that was, to- that was sliced it was so cute because he had a cast to keep the surgery in place, and he had a little button right on top of his finger that just kept everything in place. Now, I, here's what I want to tell you. I've heard that kid cry like that before and since without surgery. You know, kids do. They fall out of the treehouse. How many times has a kid fallen out of the treehouse? You hear him screaming bloody murder. But once you examine them, you realize this is not an emergency room event. You see, here's the principle. When you and I think lightly of the disease, we will loiter on the way to the physician. If you think lightly of the disease or the ailment, you will loiter on the way to the physician. And when someone is in real trouble and they need real care and real attention, you will hightail it. You will make a beeline to the emergency room. And so this is the principle when we talk about being saved, we also have to talk about what we're being saved from what we're being saved from. We are saved from God's judgment for sin, its consequences, and ultimately, its effects. So we are saved from God's judgment for sin, its consequences first, and ultimately, the effects of sin. And I think in that order, right? So you and I, when we get saved, if we have to live with every single effect of our sin, every choice, every wrong, bad, sinful choice we've ever made, Even if we have to live with the effects in this life, we still are saved from the consequences of hell, of eternal separation and anguish uh, separated from God. And ultimately, when the believer goes to heaven, ultimately, when the believer dies, he is then saved from the, the effects of sin in his life. So the consequences are damning. And the effects are destructive. I want to say that again. The consequences are damning, and the effects are destructive, right? So what is sin? What are we talking about? Well, the biblical words for sin 
Uh, the New Testament word is the word hamartiology or hamartias, where we get the word hamartiology. Okay, great. Um, but the word, mean, the, the word hamartias means to miss the mark. It means to miss the mark. Now, technically, that is the right definition. But listen, I don't like that definition. I mean, it is the correct definition. It's the right um, designation for that Greek word. But that's not how I usually associate it because I remember the first time I ever missed a mark. And it was in uh, shooting my dad's compound bow. And my dad, up until the time he bought a compound bow, he came home with a compound bow. And we were just fascinated by this weird-looking device. We could not wait to shoot it. But he used to have this green longbow, and it was this most beautiful, high-end, just a really nice longbow. And we would practice in the backyard shooting at targets all day long. And then he comes home with this weird contraption called a compound bow, and we could not wait to shoot with that thing. And I remember the first time I pulled an arrow back on it, and then I let it go, and I way overshot the target. In fact, it went into the woods. The arrow went into the woods, and we never found it. We never could. I shot it so far. Now, when we talk about missing the mark, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about overshooting the mark because the mark, the target, is the character of God himself. Whatever properties or characteristics God has, his holiness his perfect benevolence and goodness, his love, everything. Whatever mark God has, God's holiness is the mark. It is the standard. And I promise you, you and I have not overshot it. We have far undershot it. We have not even got the arrow anywhere near to the target. Uh, and that's hamartias. That is just missing the mark. But sin is more than that. Sin is also... Um, Sin is also rebellion in God's kingdom. You see, the problem is God wanted a ruler, and he gave the human being a, a heavenly, or he gave him a holy vocation. So he gave us a command to do something in his good world. And then he gave us a freedom command. He said, of all the trees of the field, you are free to eat, right? So we have this vocational dominion command to rule the world in God's stead or as a co-ruler, a co-regent. We have this freedom command that we are free to do everything within the bounds that we are free to do, within the bounds. And then we have this pro prohibition command. We are prohibited from eating of this one tree. And wouldn't you know it, that's the one thing they wanted. The one thing that was off limits in all creation, that's the one thing they had to have. And so what we see in the garden is not just missing the mark or missing the standard or falling short of God's glorious standard. It is also rebellion in the realm of God. God who is supreme and sovereign has a co-ruler who's supposed to represent his rule and his reign in the world wherever he goes, wherever his feet touch. And instead, this creature is now a rebel, an insurrectionist leading an insurgence against the sovereign king. So you have to understand that sin is missing the mark. Sin is also rebellion to the reign, to the rule of God. When God says, this is the way, walk ye in it, you and I say, no, actually, no, thank you. I think I'll, I'll not walk in it. So sin also results in the corruption of our human faculties. Now, the result of sin, in addition to damning us forever because of the curse of judgment, because of the curse of sin, it also has some effects just in the human composition, in our human constitution, we are damaged spiritually. We are spiritually dead in our trespasses. We are damaged morally 
and cognitively, our cognitive, our intellectual faculties, this is why people become atheists, because they cannot see what is so obvious in the world. There is a creator God. And we are damaged physically, volitionally. Our will is, becomes corrupt. And physically, we die every day. We age a little bit more and more. So the effects of sin, the results of sin are catastrophic on the human being. But for the believer who has come to faith in Jesus... You and I can still experience the effects of sin this way. Sin interrupts vital communion and fellowship with the Holy Spirit. So sin interrupts vital communion and fellowship with the Holy Spirit. So you and I are saved from the ultimate consequences of sin, but you and I can also have our fellowship with God, our ongoing fellowship, interrupted when we allow unchecked sin into our lives. Now, all of us have to repent. We all have to confess Every single day, I have to confess to Jesus, and I don't confess for God's sake. I confess for mine. I confess because I need to be free of it, and I need to have no barriers, no obstacles between me and my God, right? You're from the South. You say obstacle. (laughs) The 10 folks are in here are laughing at that right now. (laughs) Folks, we cannot take the disease lightly. We cannot loiter on the way to the physician. We need to understand that we are saved from sin. And Peter says concerning this great salvation, concerning that salvation that you've hoped for, that's been promised to you at the end of the world in resurrection, and that was prophesied by the prophets. We're not just saved from sin, though. We are saved for something. We're saved for eternal life. You and I are saved for eternal life and abundant life. Now, I want to explain this because Jesus says in John chapter 10. So in John chapter 10, that narrative opens up with Jesus calling the Pharisees and the religious elitists thieves and robbers. This is what they do. This is what they do. They're thieves and robbers. They try to get in the sheep pen by some some other means, and they are thieves and they are robbers. And then a few verses down, he says, here's what the thief does. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy you. That's what bad religion will do to you. Bad religion will steal your joy. Bad, controlling, uh, ungodly religion will kill your life. It'll suck the life out of your bone marrow. And bad religion will ultimately leave you destroyed. So Jesus says the thieves come to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life That word is the word, uh, the Greek word zoe. It just means the God kind of life. I've come that they may have life and have it overflowingly. Having it in overflowing measure, abundantly. We call that abundant life. Now, these are not two different kinds of life. This is not like you get one kind of life at the end of the world when you die, but then you get this other kind of life while you're a Christian. Nope, that's not what it is. It's one kind of life, and it's the God kind of life. It's the God kind of life. So what do we mean by this? Well, um, when you and I get saved, we get saved. Some of your translations have everlasting life, right? So John 3.16, he's come to give you everlasting life. Well, the word, the phrase eternal life does not necessarily mean everlasting life. I think it entails it. In other words, you are given life in perpetuity. You live forever, but so do the people in hell. Like people who end up rejecting Christ in this life and go to hell, and they end up in hell, they also have eternal life of a sort. They live in perpetuity. They never 
Their consciousness is never snuffed out or annihilated. They exist forever as well, but they exist in an unending state of mental torment and anguish because of choices made or not made in this life. So you could live forever and just have a really crummy existence, just a horrible existence. You could live forever in misery. So it does not just mean everlasting life. It means eternal life. That is, the quality of life that God has is the quality of life that you and I have. You and I have been invited into, ah, mysteriously, gloriously, unbelievable. We are the one type of creature in the world that has been invited to participate in Trinitarian life, to experience God's quality of life, eternal life. So yes, it is living forever, but it's also living in such a way that is representative of the kind of life that God has. It's a really cool concept. So when we talk about salvation, we're talking about being saved from something. You have to understand the urgency of the call. You're a sinner you're far from God, and you are headed for hell unless and until you repent in faith and put your trust in Jesus for salvation. And then he goes on to tell us concerning this salvation. So concerning that salvation, the salvation that saves, you, saves your soul from damnation, that saves your life from wanton destruction, saves you to the God kind of life, he goes on to tell us we have a rich inheritance of faith because it was foretold by the prophets. We have a rich inheritance of, uh, inheritance of faith because it was foretold by the prophets. What prophets is he, talk, are, is he referring to here? Let's look at the passage, verses 10 through 11. He says, uh, the prophets who uh, prophesied about the grace that would come to you, searched and carefully investigated they inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them, very interesting, uh, was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So what, what is a prophet? What is a prophet? What do we mean? You know, you hear people today talking about being a prophet. We've had these people in our church who's, who have told us in no uncertain terms, I'm a prophet. Uh, you may have encountered them in various uh, scenarios in life, but we want to talk about what is a prophet from a biblical point of view, okay? So, a prophet is a person who stands in the presence of God. They stand in the presence of God. They receive a message from God, and then they faithfully deliver that message, God's word, to the people that they're commissioned to. So, a prophet is a person who stands in the presence of God, and then they represent that message that, God, that they heard in God's presence to the people of God. And so there are a lot of people today claiming to speak for God, claiming to speak on his behalf. And I think that can be a very dangerous thing if it turns out that you don't speak on his behalf. I don't know what more dangerous position you can be in than to um, pretend to speak for God. And in reality, you are not speaking for God. We're going to learn about this from Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 22. Now, here's what Moses says. Are the, this is Moses' template for a prophet, a future prophet. Here's what he says, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers, uh, and you must listen to him. And, and this is what you requested. Don't you remember that you requested this? Um, he says, this is what you requested from the Lord your God at Horeb, where I made that covenant with you on the day of the assembly when you said, let us not continue to hear the voice of the Lord our God 
directly to see this, this great fire any longer so that we may not die. And then the Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up for them a prophet then, like you, Moses, from among the, their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. But the prophet who presumes to speak a message in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet must die. You may say to yourself, how can we recognize a message the Lord has not spoken? He says this, when a prophet speaks in the Lord's name and the message does not come true or is not fulfilled, okay, uh, no brainer here, that is not a message the Lord has spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, do not fear him, right? So what, what, is the, what is the assumption here? The assumption is that there are going to come prophets in your midst, and the, and the reason they're going to prophesy to you is so that you fear them instead of fearing God. And he says, don't be afraid of that person. Don't be afraid of their message. Don't be afraid of the doom and gloom. Don't be afraid of the judgment. Whatever it is that they're laying on you, don't be afraid of it because that person does not speak for me, God says. So what are the marks of a genuine prophet. Let's, let's, let's do this. Let's get into it. It's on. Let's do it. Lots of people claiming to speak for God. Here's how we know they are or not. Number one, they have to be like Moses. So the very first thing that this passage says that a prophet has to be is they have to be like Moses. What do we mean here? What does the text mean? Well, here's what it means. They cannot contradict Moses. Now, we know that the books of Moses are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so, Moses gave us the first five books of the Bible. We call this the Pentateuch. If you're Hebrew, you call it the Torah, right? So, um, so, so, we know that the Pentateuch, the first five books, the Torah, given by Moses, actually given to Moses from God, that comes from God. So, anything that has been revealed to Moses cannot be countermanded or contradicted by a future prophet. So now what you have to understand is that in the Torah, in the Pentateuch, that is the soil out of which the rest of the Bible flowers. So everything we know about God comes out of, progressively is revealed, out of the soil, the foundation of the Torah. So let's just give an example of that. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says what? In the beginning, God, let's stop right there. That means before beginning began, God was. So any doctrine or any teaching that would have you believe that God was a created being in etern from eternity past is wrong. God is preexistent before he created space, time, and the first particle of light, God was. He existed eternally and timelessly, okay? What else do we learn about God? Okay, we learn that God is sovereign. Genesis chapter 1 teaches us, God says, let there be and there is, which that is the language of sovereign decree. That is the writer's way of saying God is not just the creator of the universe, the infinite personal creator of the universe. God is a sovereign king. And when he decrees it in his realm, it is so, right? Okay, Deuteronomy 6.4, which says what? Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one Lord. 
He's one. He's categorically one. So any doctrine that would say that the Lord our God is not categorically one God is not in the line of Moses. So if a prophet is going to come after Moses, he has to be like Moses. And two, he has to be like Jesus. So I gave you some examples of that. Let's look at this one, though. Technically, he is not prophesying. Moses is not foretelling of a line of prophets. Now, God does institute a line of prophets. There are prophets that come right after the... They're called the former prophets, actually, the book of Joshua. Judges. Um, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, those are called the former prophets. If you look at it in the Hebrew canon, those are the former prophets. So, so God does institute a line of prophets, but really technically he's talking about a prophet. He doesn't say the prophets. He says someday there's going to come a prophet and he's going to be like me. Now, this is who Peter is talking about. Peter is talking about Jesus and this is actually who, who uh, Moses was talking about in Deuteronomy as well. This is the spirit of Christ inhabiting the mind and ministry of Moses, which is now setting into motion. It is catalyzing and setting into motion this message that is going to come to its ultimate completion and fulfillment in the life and the person of Jesus of Nazareth. So, you got to be like Moses if you're going to be a prophet, but you also have to be like Jesus, which means you have to teach what Jesus teaches. And if you teach things that Jesus doesn't teach, you're not a prophet. If you contradict what Jesus says about God and what Jesus says about himself and what Jesus says about a human being, you're not a prophet. I don't care how convinced you are that you've heard a word from the Lord. Now, Jesus is not just Messiah King. He is the prophet. He is the uber prophet. He is the, he is the quintessential prophet of God's people. The quintessential prophet of God's people, which means that he is the complete circle. He is the completion of that circle. Jesus referred to himself as a prophet in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, he gets up and preaches a sermon, and here's what he said. Here's what I predict. I predict that a prophet will not be accepted in his own hometown. And guess what they do? They try to kill him. People in Nazareth synagogue try to throw him off the terrace, throw him down the terraces to kill him, okay? So Jesus called himself a prophet in Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus has, this is hilarious, Jesus has risen from the dead, he is walking incognito with these, these dense disciples, and he's in their midst, and he says, oh, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> you know, that's so awesome. I would love to see that scene. He goes, what, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, what, are you so daft? Like, are you the, literally the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in word and deed? They're not wrong. They're not wrong. Jesus was a prophet, powerful in word and in deed. Jesus was the ultimate prophet that Moses is prophesying about in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Jesus is it. And if you're going to be a prophet, you have to be like Moses and you have to be like Jesus. And if you're not, you're not a prophet. You're not a prophet. Number three, they have to prophesy accurately. You'd think, right? Okay, I want, uh, so I want you to write this down. If you have a little piece of paper and pen. I think we all need to remember this, that history vindicates the prophets. History vindicates the prophets. If you're a true prophet, history will vindicate your ostensible speaking on God's behalf, right? So the, the I was going to play this clip and I decided not to. <laughs> well, actually, Daniel forgot. 
<laughs> but no, I didn't want to play it anyway because it's, it's, it is hilarious and it's embarrassing and it's really sad. But it is of a guy named Kenneth Copeland and I'm calling him out because this guy's a false teacher. He's a false prophet as far as I'm concerned. He's not like Moses. He's not like Jesus. And so he has, he got his pastoral staff in their empty sanctuary on, t- this is on national TV, like this is on a, a Christian cable network and they all stand in the front of this, this empty sanctuary and as a prophet he says that he has heard God command him to blow COVID-19 away. And you would think, that's got to be a metaphor. Turns out it wasn't. He leads his pastoral staff to begin to... (sighs) (sighs) Okay, if you want to get a good laugh later, look up Kenneth Copeland blowing COVID-19 away. Okay, so at first, the pastoral staff and I are passing around different videos, like remixes of it, and it it was hilarious, but then I got convicted. I got convicted about it, which is why I didn't play it for you this morning, because it's not just funny. Like, people of the world see it, man. It's embarrassing. He's embarrassing Christ. He's embarrassing the cause of Jesus. He's embarrassing the gospel, because God has not told him to blow COVID-19 away, and it didn't happen. After they did it, COVID-19 is still here. He's a false prophet. And people like this too often get a pass. And I'm here to tell you, you shouldn't. You shouldn't get a pass. Now, this is different than somebody coming to you very humbly and saying, man, I think the Lord gave me a word for you. You know, with that kind of humility, D- Daniel did that to me when I first came out of my surgery and uh, we had our first pastoral staff meeting and I'm sitting there in a pastoral staff meeting and um, guys back then, the guys will tell you, I, I just could barely get through a meeting. I mean, I was raspy and, and really hoarse uh, one side of my, my vocals paralyzed. And just after the meeting, Daniel said, hey man, I, I, don't, I don't presume to be a prophet or anything like that, but I just want you to know, I just really felt in my spirit that God is going to give you your voice back. And he said it to me, and I was like, oh, thanks man, but inside I was thinking, yeah, whatever. Because I was just kind of angry. I was just kind of discombobulated. I was just upside down in that moment. And I took it to heart, and I began to pray, Lord, I, I believe you gave him that encouragement for me, and I'm just going to stand on your promises. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray in faith, and the Lord did give me my voice back. I have about 80% of it back now. I'm still struggling a little bit with uh, my, my breathing pathway and stuff like that, but, but I believe that was a word from the Lord just planted down in his spirit, planted down in his heart that he gave me. And what if he had been wrong? If he had been wrong, I would have been disappointed but no harm, no foul, because the way he presented that was very humble. He handled what he thought was God's word for me with with extreme care, because he has reverence for God and reverence for his word. You see what I'm saying? So, So if a person is going to be, is going to miss it sometimes, we can give them the benefit of the doubt. But when you have a person who claims to be a prophet, as so many people that I've experienced in the church and in my life who have a vision or have a word for me, and then it turns out that eight times out of 10, they're almost always wrong, they should be left under a pile of bricks. No, I'm just joking. I, I don't think we should stone them. According to Deuteronomy 18, I really don't. But, but that, we, we, need to, we need to say, hey, um, I don't think 
this is your gift. <laughs> you know, I think we can say that in a way that's very direct, okay? So don't go blowing COVID-19 away if God hasn't told you to do that. Um, number four, they have to be diligent students of God's word. Oh, man, how often have we missed this one? This is the way that he describes any so-called prophet or one who presumes to stand in the presence of God, to hear a word from God, and then deliver that word to the people, that person better be a diligent student of the word. Here's what he says about them. He says they searched. They carefully investigated. These are different Greek words. They searched. They carefully investigated. They inquired. And then they testified. How often do people testify? How often do people say, man, I have a word from the Lord, and they haven't really taken the time to search? These are the kinds of people that he's talking about in the Old Testament. These men and women rummaged through the text. They rummaged through Scripture, sifting and silting through it, trying to understand what the Spirit of Christ within their ministries and in their minds was pointing to and directing them to. They were trying to understand it, and they were diligent. You can see in the prophets, they quote each other constantly, although they didn't use quote marks or any quote mechanisms or citation mechanisms. They didn't have that back then, but they're constantly folding old prophecies into new ones, into new oracles. And they were diligent students. These are carefully, careful people who carefully investigated meaning and exerted considerable effort to understand what it is, the oracle that God had given them and their predecessors. They inquired. They asked good questions. They asked good questions. They were humble enough to say, I don't understand this. I want to know more. Remember Daniel? Man, how many of you guys would like to be able to see the kind of visions Daniel saw? I never have but I would like to, and that would be great. If I could see like a vision of, of the end of the world, that would be awesome, and then I could understand Revelation a little better, but, but after this wonderful man, Daniel, who is a statesman and a seer, he gets all these amazing oracles, and then in Dan, Daniel chapter 9, here's what it says. He was reading the book of Jeremiah, and he was trying to understand how this was all going to play out, Right? And so he was a diligent student of the word. And then the angel came and gave him uh, understanding on the text, on the text. And so we are careful, not shoddy. We are diligent, not slothful. We are reverent, not flippant or casual with the sacred word of God. So a prophet stands in the presence of God. He hears a word from God for the people, and then he delivers it. So Peter says this. They inquired into what time or circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Wow. Wow. Number five, they serve. Peter says this, they weren't serving themselves. They didn't think they were serving themselves. They didn't get sawn in two. They didn't get persecuted like a prophet does and die like a prophet does because they thought, this is a great gig. I mean, I, I hope I can do this for the rest of my life until I'm sawn in two. I mean, seriously, being a prophet was tough stuff. It was hard work. It was a difficult, arduous vocation. And they didn't think they were serving themselves, Peter says. They thought they were serving you. They thought they were serving a future generation who would inherit and understand everything that they were prophesying about. You see, a prophet, a real prophet is a servant. A real prophet is not a control freak. 
I've seen people do this. I've seen people say, hey, I have a word for the Lord from you. And then they deliver it to a person in the congregation. And then that person, have you seen this? That person comes under the control of the prophet. And now, instead of serving that person, and he says right here, with the grace, they prophesied with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the grace of the gospel. But now instead, this false prophet, this person is putting them under their control. And so now you see a Christian who is living in condemnation and living under judgment and living under the direction and the control of the prophet. That person is not a prophet. Because the spirit of the prophet is to serve like Jesus. And then sixthly, They testify about Christ both directly and indirectly. So here's what you need to know about how the prophets prophesied about Jesus. And here's what you need to know about how Jesus and the apostles, how they understood the Old Testament. So Jesus and the apostles understood the Old Testament prophetically. What do we mean by that? Here's what we mean. They thought the Old Testament anticipated its own fulfillment. They thought the Old Testament it was a document, was a book or a collection of books that anticipated its own fulfillment. That's what they thought. And they thought that this prophetic word was messianic. They thought that the essence of prophecy in the Old Testament was messianic. That is to say, they thought it was about the Messiah. Now, there are specific prophecies about the Messiah, But the general pattern, when they're not prophesying about the Messiah in particular, the general pattern of dilemma, promise, deliverance, suffering, new creation, that pattern, that paradigm, they thought Jesus fulfilled it. And they thought that the messianism that was in prophecy was self-referential. That is to say, it was about Jesus. Jesus thought this, well, this is about me. (laughs) So when he read Deuteronomy chapter 18 in synagogue, and he heard that there was going to be a prophet who was going to come in the line of Moses, he thought, yeah, that's me. (laughs) I'm the Messiah, and that's about me. So they testified about Christ both directly, specific prophecies, and indirectly in terms of the overall pattern, the arc of the story unfolds into Jesus, and then the circle is completed in Jesus. It's brought to its intended completion. Great. All of that is wonderful. So how do we hear God? You may not be a prophet. I don't think I am. I really don't. But I, you and I have the same Holy Spirit, the same Spirit of Jesus that has permeated our lives and permeated our hearts and, and transformed us and justified us by faith. You and I have the presence of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, poured out richly, richly into our hearts, the love of God by the Holy Spirit. So here's some takeaways I think you can, if you want to hear from God like a prophet, If you want a person who really does hear from God and stand in his presence and hear a word from the Lord in some direction, so I want you to know God reveals direction. He doesn't reveal new doctrine. So he's not going to reveal to you new doctrine. He will reveal direction. First takeaway is this. Take some time to ground your thinking in the revelation and wisdom of God. That's this book. Take some time to ground your thinking, to saturate your thinking process in this book. So when COVID-19 first happened and we were all quarantined in our homes, I don't know, I might have watched like four or five Netflix shows, like just back-to-back binge watching. Did anyone else do that? I know you did. Oh, shut up. You liar. You self-righteous. Now, um, 
And then I realized I'm starting to think like the producers of these shows. I'm, th- I'm starting to think like the characters in these shows. I've got to stop this and get back to the word because I've got to saturate my mind in God's word. Here's why. Because when we, begin, when we put our minds in the word of God and we sit before it, we begin to think like God. We begin to think according to the pattern of godliness in Scripture. So we've got to take the time to diligently study the Word, sit before it, discipline yourself to do that, to take time to pray and meditate. Um, Prayer is not conversation. I don't know who came up with that, but that is really not the essence of prayer in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Prayer is petitioning. The word petition or supplication can be interchangeable with the word Uh, prayer in the New Testament. And so prayer really is coming to God with a request or coming to God to bear your soul about all that you need in order for God to meet that request and meet the needs that you have. That really is more the emphasis of prayer in the New Testament. But meditation is not requesting anything from God. Meditation is reflecting on the goodness of God. It's reflecting on how God has come through for you in the past. You see, when I lost my voice and I went on these long, cold walks by myself and I wasn't even able to vocalize my prayer to God, I did a lot of meditating. I did a lot of just thinking about how God has been good to me in the past and it's irrefutable. God doesn't fail. God God will not give up on you. So you and I need to sit before his word And we need to pray and ask him for what we need. The Bible commands us to do that. And we need to meditate on the goodness, the character, the immovable, unshakable character of God. And number three, we need to take time to listen. And I know some people don't like this because they think you're getting the Lectio Divina and stuff like that. Look, we need to listen to the Holy Spirit. There is nothing whatsoever irreligious about being quiet. And when I lost my ability to mostly speak, During the day, I was tormented by quiet. And I'm not joking. I was I was miserable in quiet. Here's why. Because I talk through every moment of the day. (laughs) I mean, I don't care what it is. I am either I think out loud by talking. Um, I am constantly working problems out by talking through them, or I'm praying constantly, praying to the Lord, uh, confession or whatever it is. And I had to learn to get silent. And you know what happened to me when I learned to listen? I started hearing. I started hearing again. When I got quiet and I couldn't hear my own voice, I could hear the direction and the encouragement and the care for me that God has for me. So I'll end with this. It's a story about an invention that probably uh, saved my marriage. And it's this little GPS unit on this phone. I think... The GPS unit single-handedly saved me from a thousand arguments trying to find stuff. And so what you need to know is that Carrie and I, we have two different theories on finding things uh, and getting directions. And Carrie's philosophy goes a little bit like this. Okay, we have the address. Uh, We don't know where we are. We're lost, clearly. So why don't we stop at a gas station and ask someone who lives here where to go? (laughs) Okay, so that is her that's the way she, she gets directions. And on the outside, to keep from fighting, I usually say, honey, that's a great suggestion. As a last resort, that is what we will do. Okay, but on the inside, there's this little man voice that says, uh-uh, no, you don't need to listen to her. You know why? 
because you're a real man and you don't need to ask anybody for directions. Enough time, you'll find it. You'll find it. So my philosophy is, yes, we have the address. No, I don't know where I am right now, but I will find it because I'm in the car, right? So now here's what I realize. I realize that in our marriage and in our family, um, I am pretty useless. I'm pretty useless contributor in a lot of ways. And I don't mean that glibly. I mean, Carrie is a domestic ninja. I mean, everyone in our family is where they're supposed to be, when they're supposed to be there, having what they're supposed to have brought. Vacation, a family trip, a trip to the grocery. It doesn't mean school, anything. She is a domestic ninja. She gets it done. If it had been up to me over the last three months, my kids would have already, my kids would have been set back two grade levels because I can't help them with their homework. I don't know anything about algebra. So Carrie just knows. She can do. She is amazing. Carrie is also a multiplier. Now, this is no exaggeration at all. I can go to the grocery store, come home with one little pitiful bag of groceries. Carrie pulls the receipt out of the grocery bag and says, $150? Oh, you're like, what do you mean you spent $150 on this one little bag of grocery? Now, by contrast, she can go and spend all afternoon, come back with an entire trunk full of groceries and have spent the same amount of money because she knows where the deals are. She knows where to get them. She is just amazing. So I fully realize that in some ways, in the areas of her strengths, I'm a helpless bystander. I don't contribute much, but not in the area of directions. This is my spiritual gift. This is why I'm on earth. I'm here. Look, this is what I do, okay? So God has designed every single believer, believe it or not, believe it or not, God has designed every person who is a saved, born-again believer to be able to sense his guiding directing presence. You can. It's an ability. It's just what we do. It's what the people of God, it's what we do when we are surrendered and submitted to the Lord. But you know what happened to me after I got this device right here and I started using it all the time? I can't even find my way to the gas station now without this device. And it's because I've become so handicapped and so used to it. My natural abilities to find and my natural abilities of direction are beginning to atrophy. And it's because I just have this thing. I always use this thing as a crutch. Now, listen, you and I need godly mentors. We need godly pastors. We need people who can help us with wisdom, people who can guide us and direct us. We need people who have been there, done that, bought the T-shirt, and can say, hey, man, don't take that path. I did that. Don't do that. We need those people. We need, even need people who come, like Daniel did with me, with a word from the Lord, say, man, I think this is what God is saying. We have to have that. But more than we need any of those surrogate voices, we need to sit in silence before the Lord and take in his word and sit in his presence and encounter his direction, his guidance. Do you have that this morning? Do you know that this morning? Let me pray for you. Guys, let's pray. Father, we just uh, are so privileged this morning to be able to gather in our homes, in house churches, as families together. And we are also so excited to be able to come back together here in the month of June in a variety of ways. And then in July, 
uh, full service church, all that, that's great. But Lord, we sit wherever we are as the people of God in your presence this morning, hearing from your word this morning. God, would you speak to us? Would you give us guidance? Would you give us direction? Would you help us to hear your voice again? And God, we may never be prophets like Jeremiah or Isaiah, but God, we are your children and we can hear you. And so, Lord, will you help us? And whatever you're struggling with this morning, whatever it is, whatever situation it is that you woke up this morning in your pajamas and sat on your couch and turned on your TV, whatever it is, would you just surrender it to the Lord right now? God, I don't have the direction. I don't know which way to go. I don't know how to get to the next step here. Would you give me guidance? Would you help me to hear you? Would you help me to know what your direction is for this next step? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to say on behalf of the 10 or so or so people who are sitting here, how much we love you. I cannot wait to see your beautiful smiling faces walk through that door. It's going to be soon, folks. I love you guys. Can't wait to see you. Have a great day. We love you. Thank you.